0: section 6 of astounding stories 13 january 1931 by various this librivox recording is in the public domain the sunken empire by h thompson rich part c the way led back down the inclined gallery to a point where another door now stood open then on down until finally the passage leveled out into a long straight tunnel this they traversed for fully a mile entering at length a large square chamber where for a moment they paused i judge we are now at the base of the large pyramid the professor voiced in an undertone it would naturally be the abode of the high priests but what do you suppose they want with us asked diane that i am not disposed to conjecture was her father's reply but the note of anxiety in his voice was not lost on diane nor on larry who pressed her hand reassuringly now their captors led them from the room through a small door opening on another inclined gallery whose turns they followed until all were out of breath from the climb it ended abruptly on a short level corridor with apertures to left and right into the latter they were led finding themselves in a grotesquely furnished room lit dimly by phosphorescent lamps swiftly the leader addressed professor stevens then all withdrew the aperture was closed by a sliding block of stone for a moment they stood there silent straining their eyes in the gloom to detect the details of their surroundings which included several curious chairs and a number of mattings strewn on the tiled floor what did he say asked diane at length in a tremulous voice he said we will remain here for the night her father replied and will be taken before the high priests at dawn At dawn, exclaimed Larry, how the deuce do they know when it is dawn down here? By their calendars, which they have kept accurately, was the answer. But there are many other questions you must both want to ask, so I shall anticipate them by telling you now what I have been able to learn. Suppose we first sit down, however—I, for one, am weary." Whereupon they drew up three of those curious chairs of some heavy wood carved with the hideous figures of this strange people's ancient gods and Professor Stevens began. Their sunken empire, as he had surmised, had indeed been the great island of Antilia, and a colony of Atlantis. A series of earthquakes and tidal waves, such as engulfed their homeland ages before, had sent it down, and the estimated archaeological date of the final submergence, namely 200 B.C., was approximately correct. But long before this ultimate catastrophe, the bulk of the disheartened population had migrated to Central and South America, founding the Mayan and Incan dynasties. Many of the faithful had stayed on, however, among them most of the Kabiri or high priests, who either were loath to leave their temples, or had been ordered by their gods to remain. At any rate, they had remained, and as the great island sank lower and lower, they had fortified themselves against the disaster in their pyramids which by then alone remained above the surface. These too had gradually disappeared beneath the angry waters, however, and with them had disappeared the steadfast priests and their faithful followers, sealing their living tombs into air-tight bell-jars that retained the atmosphere. This they had supplemented at first by drawing it down from above, but as time went by they found other means of getting air, extracting it from the sea-water under pressure, by utilizing their subterranean volcanoes in whose seething cauldrons the gods had placed their salvation. And it was this process that now provided them with the atmosphere which had so amazed their captives. But naturally lack of sunshine had produced serious degeneration in their race, and that accounted for their diminutive forms and pale bodies. Still, they had been able to survive with a degree of happiness until some ten or a dozen years ago, when a strange enemy had come down in a great metal fish like that of these new strangers and with a handful of men had conquered their country. This marauder was after their gold, and had looted their temples ruthlessly, carrying away its treasures, for which they hated him with a fury that only violation of their most sacred deities could arouse. Long ago they would have destroyed him, but for the fact that he possessed terrible weapons, which were impossible to combat. But they were in smouldering rebellion, and waited only the support of their gods, when they would fall on this oppressor and hurl him off. That, though it left many things unexplained, was all the professor had been able to gather from his conversation with the leader of their captors. He ended admitting, regretfully, that he was still in ignorance of what fate had befallen Captain Peterson and the crew of the Nereid. "'Perhaps this fellow and the other submarine has got them,' suggested Larry. "'But why weren't we taken to him, too?' asked Diane. What do you suppose they want with us, anyway, Daddy?" "'That, my dear, as I told you before,' replied her father, "'I am not disposed to conjecture. Time will reveal it. Meanwhile, we can only wait.' As before, there was a note of anxiety in his voice not lost on either of them. And as for Larry, though he knew but little of those old religions, he knew enough to realize that their altars often ran with the blood of their captives, and he shuddered. With these grim thoughts between them, the trio fell silent a silence that was interrupted presently by the arrival of a native bearing a tray heaped with strange food. Bowing, he placed it before them, and departed. Upon examination the meal proved to consist mainly of some curious kind of steamed fish, not unpalatable, but rather rank and tough. There were several varieties of fungus, too, more or less resembling mushrooms and doubtless grown in some sunless garden of the pyramid. These articles, together with a pitcher of good water that had obviously been distilled from the sea, comprised their meal, and though it was far from appetizing, they ate it. But none of the three slept that night, though Diane dozed off for a few minutes once or twice, for their apprehension of what the dawn might hold made it impossible—to say nothing of the closeness of the air in that windowless subterranean room. Slowly, wearily, the hours dragged by at length the native who had brought their food came again this time he spoke he says we are now to be taken before the high priests professor stevens translated for them almost with relief though their faces were grave they stepped out into the corridor where an escort waited Five minutes later, after proceeding along an inclined gallery that wound ever upward, they were ushered into a vast vaulted chamber lit with a thousand phosphorescent lamps, and gleaming with idols of gold and silver, jewels flashing from their eyes. High in the dome hung a great golden disk, representing the sun. At the far end, above a marble altar, coiled a dragon with tusks of ivory and scales of jade, its eyes two lustrous pearls. And all about the room thronged priests in fantastic headdress and long white robes woven through elaborately with threads of yellow and green at the appearance of the captives a murmur like a chant rose in the still air someone touched a brand to the altar and there was a flash of flame followed by a thin column of smoke that spiraled slowly upward now one of the priests stepped out the supreme one among them to judge from the magnificence of his robe and addressed the trio Speaking slowly, rhythmically. As his strange sonorous discourse continued, Professor Stevens grew visibly perturbed. His beard twitched and he shifted uneasily on his feet. Finally, the discourse ceased and the Professor replied to it briefly. Then he turned grave eyes on Larry and Diane. What is it? asked the latter nervously. What did the priest say, daddy? Her father considered before replying. Naturally, I did not gather everything, was his slow reply, but I gathered sufficient to understand what is afoot. First, however, let me explain that the dragon you see over there represents their deity, Tlaloc, god of the sea, in more happy circumstances. It would be interesting to note that the name is identified with the Mayan god of the same element. He paused as though loath to go on, then continued. At any rate, the Antillians have worshipped Tlaloc principally, since their sun-god failed them. They believe he dragged down their empire in his mighty coils through anger with them, and will raise it up again if appeased. Therefore they propose to-day to— Daddy! cried Diane, shrinking back in horror, while a chill went up Larry's spine. You mean—mean mean that— I mean, my poor child, that we are about to be sacrificed to the dragon-god of the Antillians. The words were no more than uttered, when with a weird chant the Kabiri closed in on their victims, and led them with solemn ceremonial toward the altar. In vain did Professor Stevens protest. Their decision had been made and was irrevocable. Cladlock must be appeased. Lo, even now he roared for the offering. They pointed to the dragon, from whose nostrils suddenly issued hissing spurts of flame. Larry fumed in disgust at the cheap hocus-pocus of it but the next moment a more violent emotion swept over him as he saw diane seized and borne swiftly to that loathsome shrine but even as he lunged forward the professor reached his daughter's side throwing himself in front of her he begged them to spare her to sacrifice him instead the answer of the priests was a blow that knocked the graybeard senseless and lifting diane up half swooning they flung her upon the altar mr hunter larry came her despairing cry. She struggled up, and for a moment her blue eyes opened, met his beseechingly. That was enough—that and the despairing cry, Larry. With the strength of frenzy he flung off his captors, rushed to her aid, his hard fists flailing. The pygmies went down in his path like grain before the scythe. Reaching the altar, he seized the priest, whose knife was already upraised, and lifting him bodily, flung him full into the ugly snout of that snorting dragon. Then, as a wail of dismay rose from the Kabiri at this supreme sacrilege he seized the now unconscious Diane and retreated with her toward the door. But there Spears barred his escape, and now recovered from the first shock of this fearful affront to their God, the priests started toward him. Standing at bay, with that limp, tender burden in his arms, Larry awaited the end. As the maddened horde drew near, she stirred lifted her pale face, and smiled, her eyes still shut. Oh, Larry—Diane—you saved me—I won't forget. Then the smile still lingering she slipped once more into merciful oblivion, and as Larry held her close to his heart a new warmth kindled there. But bitterness burned in his heart, too. He had saved her—won her love, perhaps—only to lose her. It wasn't fair. Was there no way out? The priests were close now their pasty faces leering with fierce anticipation of their revenge when suddenly from down the gallery outside that guarded door came the sharp crash of an explosion followed by shouts and the rush of feet at the sound the priests trembled fled backward into the room and fell moaning before their idols while the quaking guards strove frantically to close the door but before they could do so in burst half a dozen brawnish sailors in foreign uniform bearing in their hands little black bulbs that looked suspiciously like grenades shouting in a tongue larry could not distinguish above the uproar they advanced upon the retreating guards and priests then when all were herded in the far corner of the room the sailors backed toward the door motioning for larry and diane to clear out they raised those sinister little missiles preparing to fling them "'Wait!' cried Larry, thinking of Professor Stevens, and releasing Diane, who had revived, he rushed forward, seized the prostrate savant from amid the unresisting cabiri, and bore him to safety. "'Daddy!' sobbed Diane, swaying to meet them. "'Back!' shouted one of the sailors, shoving them through the door. The last glimpse Larry had of that fateful room was the horde of priests and guards huddled before their altar. Voices lifted in supplication to that hideous dragon-god, then issued a series of blinding flashes, followed by deafening explosions, mingled with shrieks of anguish. Sickened, he stood there as the reverberations died away. Presently, when it was plain no further menace would come from that blasted temple, their rescuers led the trio back down those winding galleries and through that long straight tunnel to the smaller pyramid professor stevens had recovered consciousness by now and was able to walk with larry's aid though a matted clot of blood above his left ear showed the force of the blow he had received the way after reaching the smaller pyramid led up those other galleries they had mounted the night before this time undoubtedly they were to be taken before that mysterious usurping emperor and what would be the result of that audience would it but plunge them from the frying pan into the fire wondered larry or would it mean their salvation? Anyway, he concluded, no fate could be worse than the hideous one they had just escaped, but if only Diane could be spared further anguish. He glanced at her fondly, as they walked along, and she returned him a warm smile. Now the way led into a short level passage, ending in a door guarded by two sailors with rifles. They presented arms as their comrades came up, and flung open the door. As he stepped inside, Larry blinked in amazement, for he was greeted by electric lights in ornate clusters, richly carpeted floors, walls hung with modern paintings, and there at the far end, beside a massive desk, stood an imposing personage in foreign naval uniform of high rank, strangely familiar, strangely reminiscent of war days. Even before the man spoke in his guttural English the suspicion those sailors had aroused crystallized itself—a German, a U-boat commander. "'Greetings, gentlemen, and the little lady,' boomed their host with heavy affability. "'I see that my men were in time. These swine of Antillians are a tricky lot. I must apologize for them—my subjects.' The last word was pronounced with scathing contempt. "'We return greetings,' said Professor Stevens. "'To whom, might I ask, do we owe our lives? And the honor of this interview?' "'Larry smiled. The old grey beard was up to his form all right. "'You are addressing Herr Rolf von Ulrich,' the flattered German replied, adding genially, "'commander of one of his Imperial Majesty's super-submarines during the late war, and at present Emperor of Antilia.' To which the professor replied with dignity that he was greatly honoured to make the acquaintance of so exalted a personage. And proceeded in turn to introduce himself and party. But von Ulrich checked him with a smile. "'The distinguished Professor Stevens and his charming daughter need no introduction as they are already familiar to me through the American press and radio,' he said. "'While as for Mr. Hunter, your Captain Peterson has already made me acquainted with his name.' At the mention of the commander of the Nereid all three of them gave a start. Then, "'Then my captain and crew are safe?' asked the professor, eagerly. "'Quite,' van Ulrich assured him. "'You will be taken to them presently. But first, there are one or two little things you would like explained, yes? Then I shall put to you a proposal, which, if acceptable, will guarantee your safe departure from my adopted country.' Whereupon the German traced briefly the events leading up to the present. During the last months of the war he had been placed in command of a special U-boat known as the Mystery Ship, designed to resist depth charges, and embodying many other innovations, most of them growing out of his own experience with earlier submarines. One day, while cruising off the West Indies, in wait for some luckless sugar-boat, he had been surprised by a destroyer, and forced to submerge so suddenly that his diving gear had jammed, and they had gone to the bottom but the craft had managed to withstand the pressure, and they had been able to repair the damage, limping home with a bad leak, but otherwise none the worse for the experience. The leak repaired, and the hull further strengthened, he had set out again, but when in mid-Atlantic the armistice had come, and rather than return to a defeated country subject possibly to allied revenge, he had persuaded his crew to remain out and let their craft be reported missing. What followed then, though von Ulrich masked it in polite words, was a story of piracy, until they found by degrees that there was more gold on the bottom of the ocean than on the top, and from this to the discovery of the sunken empire, where he now held reign, was but a step. They had thought at first they were looting only empty temples, but finding people there had easily conquered them, though ruling them, he admitted, was another matter, as for instance, yesterday when the priests had interfered with his orders and carried his three chief captives off to sacrifice. "'Where now but for me you would be food for their gods?' he ended. And if you do not find my hospitality altogether to your liking, friends, remember that you came uninvited—in fact, if you will recall, you came despite my explicit warning. But since they were here, he told them, they might be willing to repay his good turn with another. Whereupon von Ulrich launched into his proposal, which was that Professor Stevens place the Nereid at his disposal for visiting the depths at the foot of the plateau, where lay the capital of the Empire, he said, a magnificent metropolis known as the City of the Sun, and modeled after the great Atlantean capital, the City of the Golden Gates, and the depository of a treasure, the greedy German believed, that was the ransom of the world. The professor frowned, and for a moment Larry thought he was going to remind their host that this was not a treasure-hunt. "'Why?' he asked instead, "'do you not use your own submarine for the purpose?' "'Because for one thing she will not stand the pressure, nor will our suits,' was the reply. "'And for another she is already laden with treasure, ready for an—er—forced uh, abdication,' with a sardonic laugh. "'Then you have not enough gold already?' "'For myself, yes.' But there are my men, you see, and men who have glimpsed the treasures of the earth are not easily satisfied, professor. But have no fear. You shall accompany us, and by your aid shall pay your own ransom." End of Part C.